a quote from you here. Uh, so on the one hand, the complete lack of data, a, a conscious decision not to pursue this data. The flip side of that is your quote, this is from the BMJ, we have a creation of an epidemic of symptomless disease based on deviant biometrics. So vast amounts of data and things that are questionably disease. And you follow on from that. It's time medicine got back to its core task of attempting to relieve suffering. So on the one hand, huge amounts of data that fuel an industry of medicine. No data at all. Um, with vast amounts of suffering. And so the question last night about choice and what we choose, um, are we, as a society, would, and I don't know the answer to this in this room, but more widely, would we choose to engage in what is visible, palpable suffering on our doorstep? We're not even having to cross an ocean to get to this, rather than being you know, consumed by um, you know, a minimally high blood sugar or whatever. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, you said it started with the four-year-old. It doesn't start with the four-year-old. You know, it's, it starts at the very, very beginning. It may even start with... But if you construct a society that is so permeated with social injustice, you will end up with these kids. Uh, and, and it's done quite deliberately. This is, a, this is an extraordinarily polarised society that we live in. Uh, uh, and the predicament of people at the bottom. I mean, what is remarkable is, is that the, the people on the losing side of society, so many of them don't get to you, if you see what I mean. The fact that so many people survive uh, the, the degree of social injustice to which we, we subject them. Um, but these kids who... Every, every healthcare professional is, is familiar with you are more familiar. I think one of the most tragic things I ever was aware of is when a, a single mother, and I, God knows how anybody is a single parent, oh, Jesus, you know, you need two of you to, to gang up against this, this <laughs> toddler because, because it's an unequal battle. Um, but a single mother of 18 who is frightened of her four-year-old who is frightened of her four-year-old. I mean, I can be intellectually frightened of my four-year-old, but I am not physically frightened of my four-year-old. And, uh, and I think all this futile nonsense we indulge in, in trying to apply technical solutions to existential problems. We're trying to postpone death indefinitely. We're, we're throwing money at all these preventive interventions when we know we are to... 20 years, six adverse child experiences, which all your children will have. Yeah, That's 20 years short of life. That's much bigger than mm. cigarettes and cholesterol and, it, and her blood pressure put together. I mean, it's <coughs> the only, the only, the, the, the redirection of health and social care monies towards the under fives that is required and away from um, pushing life expectancy into the late 90s, which not many late 90-year-olds in my experience are actually thanking you for, um, is, 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 is pressing. And as our baby boomer generation moves towards the 90s in all our horror, um, and we are sure to behave badly because we always have done, that is going to become even more acute. And maybe it'll reach the point where it's undeniable that we must move the money back to the... 
We're talking here this weekend about frontiers, and Camilla, you described the dark gap that the vulnerable disappear into, and that decision makers are unable to conceptualize the existence of children living in the underbellies of cities, and that in fact those children don't have the voice or power to hold politicians accountable, or indeed to hold society accountable. I, I've you know, seen politicians uh, across the years um, because I've been trying to campaign and in different political parties. And what's striking for me is they lack visceral imagination. So they don't um, create policies that embrace the realities of these children's lives. And I actually asked the University of Cambridge to look at how much research, clinical research, government used in forming policy in relation to child mental health, and it was 0.079%. So very little of the cutting edge knowledge that's emerging is feeding into decision making. And I find it really difficult to understand why I'm left begging all the time on behalf of these kids who have a legitimate citizenship. Uh, it's just that I think society's broken the contract of childhood where adults are supposed to be responsible for the protection of kids. Instead, it's flipped and the adults almost behave in an infantilized way where they perceive the children as the enemy against whom they've got to protect themselves. And I, I feel these moral um, and ethical political flaws are not being challenged by voters. There's a sort of apathy that lets uh, the blindness of political decision making be sustained. Perpetuate. Yeah. We started yesterday morning with um, Christopher Potter giving us a, uh, a number of mind-boggling facts and figures that you know made us vertiginous in many ways, or at least you know I hope. That's, that was the aim. And I've got here, if I may, from your book, Mind the Child, a parallel, now that we're back here, a parallel set of uh, numbers. So more, this is true of Britain, these figures. More children are locked up in Britain than any other European country. More than 80% reoffend within two years. 95% of young offenders have mental health problems. One. Two, Britain's among the sixth richest countries in the world, yet we have the highest child poverty rate. Three, the age of women when they become involved in prostitution is on average just 12 years old. One in 15 young people are self-harming and 1.5 million children every year endure child abuse. These are, I mean, I have no way of corroborating his figures or your figures, but they're both figures. There's, that there's statistically, um, the, there are references against all hmm. these figures. Hmm. I mean, it's so bad. The NSPCC just produced a report called um, How Safe Are Our Children? and they couldn't get hold of proper figures anywhere. So what they were left doing is actually number crunching across a range of figures to come up with the levels of need amongst vulnerable children. So children living with parents who have substance abuse problems is 950,000 to three million. Children living with parents who have mental health difficulties is 50,000 to 2 million. Children living in conditions of domestic violence is just under 1.8 million. The, my point is, why are we even guessing? 
and the child mental health data in this country has not been updated for a decade. You know, even the numbers of rote bumps we have, speed bumps, get updated annually. So this, that's, and I actually calculated that the, if for one year we stopped building um, speed bumps, we would have had enough money not to make any cuts in children's social services. It's that sort of lack of joined up thinking because actually there are much fewer children being harmed through car accidents than there are children who are being harmed through child abuse. But the thinking isn't there. But even if we take away the purely compassionate argument, an argument based on principles, let's just, let's for a moment forget that. If we look at Iona's pyramid, we, what we, the rationale for addressing this in some substantial, considered fashion is so clear as opposed to last minute maneuvers that achieve nothing. Exactly, exactly. But, but unfortunately, providing universal uh, nursery care for every single, with, with specialist um, uh, mental health um, and, and nursery expertise, which you need and should be universally available for, for children because we've got our society in such a damaged way. Nobody makes a profit out of that. That's the trouble. But medicating the results higher up the pyramid makes a fortune. Cholesterol, the, you know, Lipitor, the highest-selling pharmaceutical in the history of the I world. I just wonder if I'm being naive, though. <laughs> and if I am, I'm almost glad that there is a shred of that left. The, the notion, though, that there's that actually in, in this country, in 2014, we can make a conscious call not to collect that data. Because mm. uh. it will be conscious. Of yeah, it's it is conscious. Co it's absolutely if conscious. Get, yeah. And I stand by it. Yeah. I absolutely stand by it. Marilyn Because Martin. I've challenged um, the one of the education ministers, uh, you know, because they come on they come on and they say, and this is all the creative things we're going to do, and this is what we're going to do. This is the ghosting uh, comment. Yeah, the whole, this is actually, you know, the ministers. Yeah, yeah. Well, each minister who comes along sort of uh, suddenly comes up with this beautiful tree of things they're going to do. And you just sit there and you ask them, are you going to collect the numbers of children who are being maltreated in this country? Are you actually going to take up that challenge? and capture the data. And do you know what they say immediately? Oh, my parents foster. Oh, I'm adopted. It's almost like that just has now become the defense mechanism uh, for ministers. The minute you challenge them about something, they want to show you that they know all about vulnerability and so on because their parent fosters or they've been adopted themselves. You know, actually, this doesn't work. You know, they need to understand there's a requirement for rigor in this area, and they don't want to face it. I had someone very high up, and it would blow your mind if I told you who it was, but someone very high up inside Downing Street once said to me, we know children's social services is not fit for purpose, but none of us want to go near it, Camilla. And that's it. That's Marilyn Moore bringing us back to great poets. Omissions are not accidents. No. No. A phrase that you use, which I've, I mean, it strikes me, is this, this the, the term, the protected. Mm. Um, 
rather, you know, rather than necessarily the privilege. So, so in, in a, and that gives me an, an, the image that comes to mind, anyway, is, is of a relatively sparse protected under a glass bowl, whilst around us, you know, all hell <laughs> breaks loose. And we're pretty comfy under that glass bowl. But you know it's going to change because the drug dealers now, for example, and I want to show you how these things are systemic. When I first started, the drug dealers were pulling in 15 and 16 year olds who had knives and getting them to courier drugs. Now they're taking eight and nine year olds and using them as couriers for drugs. They're using very young children to put drugs in the vagina of girls in, and they're forcing these kids to go to the countryside and then what they're doing is they're making children hand out drugs to other children in the countryside, getting them addicted and then they're setting up drug houses from where they're doing a business. It's an actual active decision on the part of drug dealers in inner city environments to spread the business to the countryside. In about five years, there's going to be such a difficulty and the countryside's police is not geared for this because now the 14 and 15 year olds have got firearms. Um, you, and just last month, we had one boy, someone drove on a bike uh, with a balaclava, shot at a boy inside a car and the boy had the presence to lift his legs up, so he protected his heart, but he got sprayed with 13 bullets. And this is Britain, this is not Syria, but you know, it's just, and people, the police know it's going on, but actually it's not spoken about. So consequently, large numbers of children are surviving in a British war zone here, and no one does anything about it, and that's why I get angry on behalf of the kids, because we can see it day in, day out. We're going to raise the house lights in a minute now. Um, in fact, if we could raise them. And as they're coming up, just for a final word from both of you, why are you having to beg? And what is medicine's duty here? I, I'm having to beg because when kids come directly to a charity and ask for help, there is no financial modeling for that. So in 18 years that we've been going, we haven't had one pence from a local authority to pay for these children's social care or mental health delivery that we're having to deliver. In addition to that, I have to spend about a million on in-house social workers and lawyers to police the local social work departments, because by law, we're not allowed to take an under 16 into our care, but we're left with a situation where the social work department doesn't want them either. So we're having to use our solicitors and our social workers to push the child into the system and track the child inside the system. So the reason we're not ending up with money is because we mirror the disenfranchisement of our children systemically. And <coughs> consequently, I'm left with having to fundraise through cupcake sales and cocktail parties for something that is so urgent. And these kids so need that protection. 
and they deserve to have that protection and for it not to be reliant on whether I open a restaurant or I manage to, you know, end up doing some silly beliefs thing somewhere to try and get some money, you know, to, to meet this need. Two things that medicine should do. One is remember our power for advocacy. Um, every single, certainly GP, knows what goes on with, with, with vulnerable children and they know how many of them there are and, and, and you're just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so our power of advocacy and also it is so, it is so tempting to get locked into the incremental making treatments of, of things just a little bit better, giving people another three days of life for 20 years of drugs. It's, it's so easy to get sucked into that and I, I think that we need to, I, 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 I hate the idea of a national health service, not, not the NHS, but I, this thing that we should have a national, uh, we should have a, we have a national sickness service and we should have a national health service. I, I hate that dichotomy. We should have a, a national sickness service. We should look after people of sick first. Our first responsibility is to those who are sickest. We should, we should leave the well alone because we tend to harm them much more than we harm the sick. And we should, and we know, we know so much about the power of trauma in childhood to, to, to damage health that we, we should be, all of us, as a medical profession, as, a health, as healthcare professionals, arguing for investment in, in early years services. And journals like the BMJ and so on, they've got to lead on these things. You know, they, this is the sort of, these journals are the intellectual drivers and they've got to embrace these topics. I heard people p complaining that this year's medicine box hadn't been political enough, and I hope we've attempted to balance that up a little. <laughs> right. There's one right in the middle there, Sam. Uh, Sarah. Is it? Hello. Is that near? Yeah. Um, I've got a four-year-old, and um, I, I used to be a medical secretary, that's why I'm here and I'm a poet. Um, my query is, um, he has a meltdown about once a week at the moment, and it takes about 45 minutes for him to calm down sometimes. And you hear similar stories from other parents, and then you, you wonder whether you need to seek any kind of help with the management or communication between you and your child. Um, and you also worry, if you do go and see somebody about that, whether they will be recorded as a vulnerable child then, and then you, you are in their books <coughs> or on their list. And Okay, um, so the question yeah. is, how so do you identify? The question is, how d um, at what point do you know whether you need management or communication help with your child? The 45 minutes is really interesting because uh, what we've looked at is when uh, a child gets very distressed, and it's the same process in trauma, the, the and the distress is extreme, the emotionally driven parts of the brain, the limbic system shuts down, the frontal lobe shuts down, and the child starts operating from brainstem predominantly. And that's about 45 minutes of a tantrum-like behavior. It's exactly that process that results in a kid stabbing someone 
for 45 times, you know, and people say the first time the guy died, why did he carry on? The answer is there's something in the brain that doesn't allow anyone to stop until they've completed that cycle. So actually, these tantrums are maturity, developmental, um, you know, journeys when they're at this age. But if you're experiencing them as being more than that, I think it's really important that you go and seek help. Um, but document the fact that you've sought help in writing so that they don't turn it on you. Yeah. Thank you. Any others? Oh, up, up top, is there a microphone? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much again for, uh, to both of you for your talks. Um, uh, the political turn and the political and the sociological turn that this um, took, I think uh, it's a very general question, but Camilla, <coughs> what what you bring up is, um, I think, something that maybe hasn't been addressed um, from uh, in in all the talk about medicine is is that you you ask for help from the politicians or from from people that uh, and very very sort of intentionally and clearly ask for help. I wonder if medicine can also ask for help. Um, and I think that's where envisioning health as part of a democracy and and kind of the, the very <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, uh, the fact that we are so, oh, now I'm getting into fluffy language, <coughs> but, but the no, interconnectedness. No, I think so if I may, just in the interest mm. of time, are you saying that, uh, our doctors, our, is our health professions good as bodies in asking for that kind of change? Because it's interesting, isn't it? it? Maybe I'm wrong, but it's stuck in my head that we're very good at striking or being cross when our personal rights are being infringed. How often do we see, um, as, as groups and as bodies, us, you know, championing a particular version of I mean, people like Ray Tallis, do, you know, individually we do, but as a body, we're very bad at asking for social justice. I think we're, we're quite good at the individual level. Yeah. You know, we're quite good at writing housing letters, ringing councillors, uh, ringing housing inspectors, you know, trying to improve the situation of a single family. I agree that our representative bodies have been very, uh, have not been the source of powerful advocacy that they potentially have. Does it say very much for us uh, though, as a profession? I think there's a reason for this. I think generally in the culture um, of Britain is this shame around caregiving. Hmm. So anybody who is a deliverer of care is often perceived as a failing bod or worthy person or whatever. And also, I think that's interjected by the profession. So the professions are very kind of um, groveling, grateful for whatever morsel they get to do their jobs with. And they don't uphold the rights of care as central, as important as the economy, as important as foreign affairs. That cultural shift needs to take place in Britain. Okay. Thank you. Question, um, Terry. Hi, uh, Camilla, thank you for coming today. You've been a hero of mine for 18 years. Thank you. You're also a hero for many, many social workers up and down the country, and I want you to know that I was a social worker in child protection and adoption for the whole of my life, and 
it's very good to hear your take on things. I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's difficult sometimes to stand up in care proceedings and other official things and say, please stop calling this child naughty. Mm. They are not naughty children when you've got chief constables and the care workers. I would just like to say, I think there are one of the reasons why people don't want to look into this from politicians to anybody else is that the problem is huge. It's really enormous and it's got to be tackled on many fronts. One of the reasons we're in this state is because social work has always been um, a Cinderella profession and the more scandals we have, the worse it gets. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. Part of that is because we don't get a very good press. We don't get an opportunity to have a realistic press in the time between the scandals. And I'm quite sure a lot of people, our politicians included, think that neglect means something not very nice in your lunchbox. Actually, it means no furniture, no food, no clothes. Next day, you might have a bit, and then you go home, and it's still the same. You sleep behind the sofa. There's never, ever been a bed. You don't know when your next meal is coming from. You sit next to someone at school, and the teacher moves them because you smell, and you've got things crawling around in your head. I do feel that social workers have got to try and take back what little power we had. But if we could call on doctors who've traditionally had much more power than us to get in at the health end, that would help. But thank you again for being here. You are being listened to across the country. It's just that we can't do what we want to do. I couldn't do the job I was trained for in the current climate. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you very much. We've got three very quick questions. So someone's got the microphone, and then in the middle row here, please, if we can get a microphone there, and then the gentleman at the front. Okay, we thank you. As briefly as you can. Thank we you. We heard, we heard from um, Iona about the prescience of the 1969 uh, quote she made. I'd like to quote very briefly from an early 1970s prescient man, Ivan Illich. Um, was there ever a, um, a, an opening sentence to a book that was designed better to entice you into it. I quote, the medical establishment has become a major threat to health. Thank you. And, and, and I would further that with this discussion now, um, that it's not just the medical establishment, it's the whole of the establishment. Yeah. And I feel a sense of helplessness with what is silence, maybe a per per perpetuation of a culture of vengefulness, which certainly doesn't help. And within my helplessness, have um, both the speakers got any suggestions what I and anybody else here can do to begin to redress some of these awful things that we're hearing about? Camilla, briefly. Um, write to your MPs, protest, insist that the issue of vulnerable children and their care should be prioritised and hold them accountable on behalf of these kids who can't do the writing. Yeah. And all of us, I mean, I, I'm multiply guilty compared to you. All of us forego our, you know, our, what, uh, the luxuries that we kind of champion in modern medicine for a wider world view, uh, reinventing, in a sense, what, what we perceive of as our, as our duties. Yeah, uh, thanks, this is on. 
Um, I've heard a strong plea from you both for a closer relationship between children's services and uh, the health services and the NHS, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but at the moment, uh, as I understand, children's services are more with education, and I think that that also makes a lot of sense. You know, they're, they're a very strong sort of alarm system for, um, for when things are going wrong. And we've heard arguments this afternoon for and against multidisciplinary teams. Um, I'd just like to hear a bit more about what your, your model would be. Or should, it be part, or should children's services be part of the NHS? Or, or education. Or education or something. Is there another model? How would you I would it? go for a department of child and family resilience. I would conceptualize the whole thing as resilience. And if you didn't want to dramatically change government departments, I would put it all in health, but with the package that it is literally the department of child and family resilience. And, and then in there, I would put child protection, uh, child mental health, youth offending, children with additional needs, um, and that, I think, and give it a shit-hot minister instead of the rejects, you know, that get the brief. Yeah. Right. Final question. Thank you. It's actually very related to that. It was just a question to see whether you've seen any models or if there's been anywhere in any countries where this has been done well, where you've seen this been done. Well, I think, uh, I think the, the, it's this thing as us having more children in custody than any other European country. So basically, you could learn from any other country in the world. Um, but particularly, you could learn, I think, from Scandinavia, who have a much, much less punitive attitude. And I love it's the story from Finland about they, they appointed an inspector of schools who promptly abolished the role and who now goes around saying that inspection doesn't make help children. You know, inspecting teachers, making teachers afraid does not help. So, you know, and now what have we got? We've got health, you know, terrorized by inspectors under every sort of corner of carpet. It's, it's, it, it, talk about not dealing with the actual problem. I'm reminded of Amartya Sen who says we do not have, a, have to have a perfect world before we start addressing the injustices right under our nose. Investing in inspectors and inspectors of inspectors and inspectors of inspectors of inspectors, instead of it providing services directly to children and their families is a world run crazy. Um, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for you. Thank you.